Welcome to Core Parenting Conversations with Kaylee. My name is Kaylee Kukwa, and I've spent the last decade supporting children and families with challenging behaviors. As a mom of two, I appreciate how overwhelming and exhausting parenthood can often be. So I'm taking all of my book knowledge and combining it with real life experiences to change the dialogue around parenting. We'll have powerful conversations that always include practical tips so you can walk away feeling inspired and empowered to make simple yet impactful changes in your family's life. Let's dive in. And welcome to the first Behavior Bites episode for the month of April. I did a Behavior Bites series back in October, and it was wildly successful, and people loved it. And these are the podcasts that I am more likely to recommend when I get questions on social media, because they deal with very specific common early childhood behaviors, and they're short, sweet, to the point, and they give you practical advice or tips to try and approach these behaviors that can be really triggering for parents, but are just super common throughout early childhood. So to kick it off, I'm going to get a question that I get a lot. And actually, this is a question that came up, I feel like back to back to back, in our core membership. So twice a month inside core, we do like free for all Q&A where people ask their questions and then I answer them. And this just kept coming up. (laughs) So I was like, I need to make a podcast episode about this because if these people keep asking this question, there's probably lots more with the same question that's going on. So I've gathered this to be the first, but there are other topics upcoming for the next month that will be included in this series, which will be the last series before I go on maternity leave until the fall of this year. Just a reminder, if you want more of these topics or more in-depth answers or a chance to collaborate with me on how to customize this or make this fit your family a little bit better, you can definitely check out the core community and join that I will be there throughout the summer and also bring in some special guests while I do take some time to adjust to being a mom of three and recover from having my third son in May. So for this first Behavior Bite conversation, we're going to tackle the common question of what do I do when my child looks right at me and does exactly what I'm telling them not to do? Oftentimes, this is interpreted interpreted as a testing behavior, and testing feels like malicious. It feels like they're testing us, so we've got to come in strong with a strong response. And so adults will respond dramatically to make sure the child knows that is not acceptable. While that original premise of testing is correct, I want to reframe it to be more neutral and feel less personal. And this is something I reframe often, um, but I think that just the reminder can be super helpful for all of us because there is an underlying developmental need and drive. And when we understand that, when we reframe our child as acting upon those 
natural and developmentally appropriate impulses, it feels a lot less personal. And when it feels less personal, it's typically easier to remain calm and respond thoughtfully and in like this teaching headspace. So what's up with this? Why does our child look right at us? Why do they look right at me and do exactly what I'm telling him not to do? (laughs) There's a few simple reasons that I'll dive into, and then we'll talk about how to respond in a helpful manner. So the first reason is curiosity, not just of what will happen if I do this, right? There's a lot of cause and effect experimentation going on often, but also curiosity about the adult's reaction. This is testing, but not in the manipulative sense that a lot of us feel when it's happening. It's a curiosity that is hardwired into young children to test situations to figure out how the world works. And children look to us as a representative of how the world works. (laughs) In fact, Jean Piaget, who is one of the godfathers of child development and psychology nicknamed toddlers as little scientists because they walk around the world and everything is an experiment or a question they want to answer, which is something I absolutely adore about toddlerhood and early childhood, but it can be also uh, at times pretty harrowing, exhausting, and just feel nonstop. So it's a great developmental stage and it's beautiful and wonderful and it's genuine curiosity. It can also just be exhausting if you're the primary caregiver and you you try and intercept and keep your child safe just all day. (laughs) The other quality is delayed language processing. Children are language learners. If you've listened to this podcast, this is a quality that I discuss a lot because so often adults think words are enough and they're just simply not. They read our energy and actions, think body language, much faster than your words. One of the little mantras that I sing in my head is talk less, move more. And I sing it to the tune of Hamilton's Talk Less, Smile More by Aaron Burr. (laughs) Because children have delayed language processing and the speed will vary widely across different children in different spaces, environments, and circumstances. So they may still be the processing the words you spoke two sentences ago, and you're becoming increasingly frustrated because they're not heeding the words that you're saying now. And the last thing is impulse control. And it's really not the last thing. It's just the last thing I'm going to touch on today. (laughs) But let's say they, they process the words. So they have your message. Now they have to coordinate their brain to coordinate their body to act on that message. This inhibition or impulse control is incredibly difficult in early childhood. Those neuropathways are underdeveloped and difficult to activate. To remind myself about this, I often visualize a road under construction because literally these pathways are being forged in the brain at a rapid pace throughout early childhood. New roads. Think about what they, if you've ever driven on one, right? They're bumpy. They may be disjointed. There's lots of potholes. There's gravel. You could get stuck. You may have to start and stop a lot, slow down to adjust, take detours. And the way to your destination may be confusing. Our child's brain connections are a lot like this. They often get stuck. 
they often have difficulty staying on course. (laughs) Getting to their destination has a lot of bumps. And they need people in orange vests and hard hats with traffic signs to help them find their way. And if you didn't follow that analogy, we're the people in the orange vests with the traffic signs helping them find their way. (laughs) But why do they look at you while they do something? Because you're their most impactful teacher. They're wired to look to you, to us, to the adults, to figure out and make sense of the world. Is this safe or unsafe? Is this interesting? How should I respond? What's the power dynamic here? Knowing these predispositions, it makes a little more sense that when a child flits from activity to activity and experiments with doing different and sometimes gross or unsafe or just very random things, they're watching for our responses. And this starts in infancy. I was just visiting cousins and we had ages six months all the way up to like age 14. Many, many kids all gathered together. And, you know, the baby was wanted to come to me. I was holding her and I had sunglasses on my head. So at six months old, you know, she's reaching, she's grabbing. There's no impulse control there. She sees it, she wants it, she grabs it. She's got those still that strong little hand reflex. So when she grabs onto hair or sunglasses or earrings or necklace, it's that like death baby grip that they have, you know, but they might continue. She was reaching for my glasses and kind of looking at my face to see how I would respond. Toddlers do the same thing. They may reach up for something you just told them not to touch. Maybe you even tried to move it away from them. They continue to reach for it while they're looking at you. Like, are you sure, mom? Are you sure this really isn't okay? Because I really want to look at it. Are you sure? And it continues all the way up through adolescence. They're experimenting. Maybe they come home and they're trying out a new phrase or word or something they overheard that's kind of hurtful or offensive. And they're trying it out and they're watching your reaction. They're trying it on. What is she going to do if I say this? They are testing but not in a malicious way. They are learning about how to interpret these experiences. Where are the boundaries? Where is the limit? What does this do to relationships? How much power and influence do I have in my environment? Is this safe or unsafe? They're answering all these underlying questions in the time that they're doing these behaviors. If you've tried the Instagram parenting tips and tricks to gain connection and cooperation with your child and it's still not working, Or maybe you just want to grow your parenting toolbox or grow your own personal skill set. If you feel confused about how to respond to some of your child's bigger behavior, or maybe you need the encouragement and accountability to make the changes you know you and your family need, CORE offers the weekly support and tools to make these powerful shifts within a supportive, uplifting community. We talk about real-life parenting, not the neat and clean two-dimensional examples given on social media. You can learn more about my core membership program by heading to www.kayleekukla.com backslash core. It's a month-to-month membership. You can cancel it at any time, no strings attached, and it's meant to be on-demand parenting support. So you can access it when it's needed and when it's convenient for you. 
The link is in the show notes to learn more. And now back to this core conversation with Kaylee. Big reactions from us may cause our child to stop and freeze in the moment, but they also add a lot of fuel to the fire, so to speak. They give this action or this object or whatever the situation is, a lot of power. So it becomes more interesting and the child is more likely to test this behavior again. So the big reaction actually perpetuates the behavior we wish to decrease, whether it be hitting, biting, swearing, throwing, name calling, or going after, let's say the dog, for example, a dangerous item that maybe you don't want them going after. Not saying dogs are dangerous. Let me just clarify that. <laughs> but maybe the dog's running away to get space. And if the dog gets cornered, then it actually could be a dangerous situation. So keeping all of that in mind, what do we do? <laughs> now that we can view this behavior objectively and not as a personal sign of disrespect or disobedience, how can we respond in a way that sends a consistent, clear message? And here's the number one tip. Align. Align your energy, your tone, your words, and your actions. The energy we bring into the situation is confident, calm, and assertive. I can handle this. I know what to do. I know how to help. The tone is also, the tone really is driven by our energy, right? It, it often, if we're feeling really reactive or dysregulated, we'll probably use a more dysregulated or harsher tone. I certainly, that identifies me very much. The tone is probably my biggest piece that I need to work on. Tone is calm, confident, and assertive. I think there's a lot of certainty and confidence behind an even tone because we have clarity around the limits and how to hold those limits. Words, clear, concise words that are facilitated with actions. Speaking in negation, such as no, stop, and don't, is confusing to children. Remember, they are language learners and slower to process even clear directions. So if we tell them not to do something, their brain struggles even more to figure out what to do. The best example I use is one I use with a skeptical dad <laughs> one time. And we were in Panera, and he challenged me directly on replacing no, stop, don't. It was very much like, well, I don't believe kids should not, you know, should never hear no. They need to learn how to accept no. And I have a whole podcast on that. I certainly think that children know that that's an important life lesson. We need to learn how to accept no, and accepting no is hard. But if we speak in negations, it's very confusing. So my example was we were sitting at the table and I said, stop sitting down. Don't sit down. What are you doing? Stop sitting down. And he just looked at me. I was like, well, what do I want you to do? Do I want you to stand up? Do I want you to go under the table and retrieve what just fell down? Do I want you to walk away from the table? Would I like you to go get a drink refill? All you know is that, you, is that I don't want you to sit down, but you're not sure what I want you to do. It would be much more clearer and helpful for me to say, Mike, please go get us drink refills so we can get ready to go. It's just much clearer. So not using no, stop, don't and those negations aren't necessarily about just avoiding no, because I think that perpetuates this idea we need to walk on eggshells around our children. 
No, it's about being clear and concise and giving energy to what we want instead of focusing on what we don't want. Now, the alignment with our actions is key. We create momentum towards an activity with our actions and energy. So if we're saying one thing and doing another, we're sending mixed messages and it's confusing to our children. Our children process our actions and energy much faster than our words because energy and action is processed in a more primitive part of the brain, whereas words are processed in a still developing part of the brain. So let's apply this to my Panera example with dad. If Mike went to get us refills under the belief we'd be getting ready to go, but I continue to sit at the table, lean back in my chair, stay all comfortable, chatting with others, sipping my coffee, that would be confusing, right? Was this the right time to go get refills? Is it really time to go? Why am I the only one getting ready to go? Did I miss something? There's very unclear expectations and Mike starts to doubt his actions. So he may just sit back down and disregard getting the refills, disregard getting ready to go because no one else is. What does that look like with our children? When we say put that down, but we're looking at a different task at hand or continuing on with our current task or not fully present with our child, we're not linking our words, energy, attention with the action of putting it down. This goes the same with sibling situations. If we tell them to stop doing something with their sibling or find your own space, take that over there, right? Because we want to focus on what we want to do. We're sending mixed messages that in fact, the child may even look at us while they continue to do something to antagonize their sibling. They are looking for the limit. They are looking to us to show them the limit. And going back to that immature impulse control, they are probably so caught up in the action they have already initiated, like trying to hit their brother with the block or poking their sister or name calling or whatever they're doing. They need us to help redirect or stop the action. Is this frustrating? Yes. Is it exhausting? Totally. (laughs) So here are some quick tips that I've used for years to help preserve my sanity for the most part. So the first one is get clear on what's the priority. And this is actually straight from my limit setting book, because if we don't have clarity around these things, it's not going, we're not going to be able to be confident when we're asserting them with our children. Do they really need to stop now? If the answer is yes, that takes priority over what I'm currently doing. So I must stop my current activity and enter the situation as I'm saying the words so that my words and actions are in alignment. Going back to the energy piece. Number two, find little ways to be less reactive in the moment. This is not a one-size-fits-all. This could be practicing stress cycle completion things throughout the day. This could be doing it in the moment. This could be just developing an awareness. This is a journey, right? I don't expect you to have these tools all in your back pocket. But if we enter the situation with that big, huge, strong reaction and energy, right, we're perpetuating that situation. So sometimes I close my eyes for a moment before I start walking, literally a moment. I just have to drown out that sensory for a second and then I can start moving towards them. Or as I'm walking towards them, decrease my urgency by saying a mantra in my head, such as, it's not personal, it's developmental, 
they need my help. And <laughs> remembering to do this while I'm trying to de-escalate myself before I approach my children or as I'm approaching them. Another thing, and I think we talked about this a lot in core for about a month last month, is be proactive. When you know you can't be fully present, there are certain points during the day that we know we just have to plan ahead because they tend to be more difficult for our children, whether it be when I need to cook dinner, when we're driving, when, when I need to make a grocery list, when I need to respond to a time-sensitive email. You know, all those adulting things we need to do outside of the parenting realm is real. And I remember feeling like this was a particular point of frustration for me early on in parenthood because it was so hard for me to do anything outside of my infant and toddler, but I still had a lot of stuff to get done. So being proactive and being aware doesn't necessarily work every time, but it drastically helps and decreases the frustration of these daily tasks. This may mean designating a safe space for your toddler where they can freely explore and get into things that are safe and appropriate so you're not constantly having to field like disaster zones <laughs> or legitimately dangerous situations. It could also mean engaging siblings into different activities so they're not interacting with each other while you need 15 minutes of uninterrupted time without sibling tiffs or explosions. I used to keep certain tabletop activities, it's like my inner teacher, I'm channeling, <laughs> stored in the kitchen, like in kitchen cabinets, so that my children could play with them in a high chair, in a toddler stool at the counter or at the kitchen table, or even get in. There was like a whole cabinet I had designated for my toddler and my infant, or at the time, my baby. And he would literally like crawl into the cabinet and play in the cabinet. He loved that space. <laughs> while I was, you know, doing things like prepping dinner. Did this work every night without fail? No. But it worked a lot of the time and it gave me a lot of different options to separate and engage them while I needed to get through the first 10 or 15 minutes of a recipe. So there you have it. There's the first Behavior Bite episode for April. I'll be publishing another one on Wednesday. So tune in as we shift to answer the common behavior of children who don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about mistakes, misbehaviors, or feelings. What are some backdoor strategies we can use to help those conversations happen or at least help them process the events without having those direct conversations? If this episode was helpful to you, please consider leaving a review or rating or sharing it with friends. This helps spread the message of conscious, intentional parenting which I deeply believe can change the world. Thanks so much for being here and have a wonderful week. <music>